Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. Every week on this show, we talk to interesting people from the world of arts and entertainment. And I don't want that to just mean the biggest stars. I also want it to mean folks who you maybe haven't heard of or maybe on the cusp. And for me, that really describes this week's guest. My guest today is behind many of your favorite TV shows uh, he's worked on. Nip Tuck, Glee, American Crime Story, American Horror Story, Scream Queens. His new show is Feud. Uh, it is about the battle between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis while filming Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. I've seen the first two. They're very funny. They're very fun. I'm talking, of course, of Ryan Murphy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So watching Feud, I really kind of keyed in on something I think has been present in a lot of your work that I, I hadn't thought about this way before. I guess I'd say kind of kind of a theme you keep coming back and back to again and again. Uh, and that's sort of shit rolling downhill, if you will, which is, you know, the people who have the power often got there because they were ruthless and they're just sort of mean to everybody below them. And then the people below them are mean to the people below them. And I'm wondering if you think that's sort of an accurate read of what your work has been and like where you've observed that in life that you feel like um, you want to keep returning it to it in your art. That's a really good question. I mean, I don't know if I would say it's about that. I'm never consciously aware of that idea. <laughs> I, I will tell you that around a month ago, I was having a conversation with somebody about my work. And when you're in the work, like you never think, okay, what are my themes and what am I writing about? But we were having a conversation about it. And the thing that I came to the conclusion was that all of my work is probably about one thing, which is ambition. This idea of I want to be somebody, I want to become somebody, I'm afraid of everything that I have going away, I'm afraid of nobody seeing potential in me, you know, which is a very sort of deep-seated fear that I think I, looking back at it, I've had, you know, since birth. I think I was raised by two people who were big dreamers and their dreams didn't come true, so I was sort of surrounded by that as a kid and terrified of, of feeling that way and feeling that I hadn't risked anything. You know, my dad, when I was growing up, really wanted to be a lawyer and he had all the education, but he was too terrified of failing the bar to take the bar. Mm -hmm. And even as like a three-year-old, four-year-old, I, I remember saying, you should do it. You should go for it. You can do it. And mm -hmm. he was so scared of failing that he never went for it. So I'm always, I think, looking at few drawn to people who have ambition and sort of who have clawed their way up from nothing, which Joan Crawford certainly did, Betty Davis certainly did. And there's nothing more terrifying than trying to get success than to hold on to success. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really hard to hang on to success when you're a woman and you're in Hollywood. And, you know, that moved me a lot. And I was creating this show at the exact same time in my life. I was forming the half foundation in my company, which came from a point where I realized, boy, I really fucked this up. Mm -hmm. um, I really have screwed up in that I have many directorial positions that I could feel. And we were shooting um, OJ. And I had a woman slotted in to do um, Marsha, 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 that episode. Episode, which was very important to me. And a couple of weeks before filming, she had to have an uh, emergency surgery and she pulled out. And I obviously had worked with Sarah Paulson closely. And I was like, okay, well, uh, what about her? What about her? I'll just do it. It was one of those things. And the episode turned out great, but I still feel like it would have been better served if it had been directed by a woman. And it sort of sent me into this shame spiral of like, why don't I have in my life 
relationships with a lot of great female directors who I can have on speed dial. So I formed this foundation um, from a moment of shame that's about all of the directorial slots in my company are 50% women and that's it. I wanted to quantify it. And from that and talking to a lot of these women and also we're meeting and hiring a lot of younger women and mentoring them and bringing them up and working with them on future scholarships, I got to sort of say, well, what could I be doing differently and how could you be better served by the industry? And there were a lot of really painful, awful stories. So I started to work on this idea of feud at the same time I was doing the foundation. So to me, it was sort of a year about examining um, how badly women are treated in general, but mm-hmm. specifically in Hollywood. Interesting. I want to go back to when, when you were starting out, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you, before you broke through, you did some, some journalism, some work as a freelancer. Yeah. Did you enjoy that world? Was that, I was loved that it. What, what did you like about being in journalism? Well, I was accepted to film school, but I was in a weird thing where my parents... I made too much money for me to get a scholarship but not enough to pay for it. So I ended up saying, well, I guess I don't need to be a director or a screenwriter now. I'll figure that out one day. So I went to journalism school at Indiana University. And I like the discipline of journalism. And I really got sucked up into that world in college. I like had an internship at the Washington Post and Bob Woodward was a mentor to me and for a very brief time. But I, I like the discipline of it. And you know, like uh, I was in newspapers back when there were a lot of newspapers and they would have, you know, freelance writers and I was paid by the story. So what I learned is like, if you don't turn in three stories a day, you don't eat. So Mm -hmm. I sort of came up with that discipline of I got to produce, I got to write, I got to get a paycheck, you know, and I moved out to LA with no money. I didn't know anybody. And I had had previously a job at the Miami Herald and I convinced them to sort of let me do what I was doing there out here. And I had a great editor at the time named Bill Greer. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll let you do it and I'll pay you the same amount of money. But I liked the discipline of it. And I liked meeting people and asking them questions which I had always done since a child, as I'm sure you do. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, the funny great thing about Feud was I had done one of the last, if not the last, interview with Betty Davis. Um, I had been writing to her since I was a child, and and she finally said, yes, you can come and interview me. Mm -hmm. So I flew, the first time I was in LA, I think I was like 19 or 20, and her assistant, a wonderful woman named Catherine Cermak, said, you have 20 minutes, and it ended up being four hours. Mm -hmm. So I got to ask her all these amazing questions, and speaking of reporting, a lot of that reportage and stuff is in the show. Right. So I've always really loved that. And right. I and I keep my hand in now and again, like I'll write an article or two. I'm a person who has sort of a lot of interests and hobbies and, and I, I've always liked it. You mentioned the Betty Davis interview. What, what do you think having that level of like real world experience or like real world reporting can bring to, you know, writing fiction or fictional takes on real events? Well, the stuff that I got from her, for example, was really about deep, intimate, personal pain. You know, that's what I was drawn to. I wasn't sort of interested in like the glamour part of her career or the awards. I was interested in the pain of her life because I could even tell from that experience that she was lonely and at the end of her life and had a lot of regrets. I guess I key into the emotional stuff. I always did. I'm, I'm, I like to write emotional things. And I feel like when I've succeeded, I've been able to sort of tap into emotions that are relatable to people. And I think when I've failed, I have not done that. And it's been the older I get, the more... I feel like, okay, well, that's what I want to do. I'm more interested in telling real human stories about real people with real feelings. You know, pushing myself to go deeper. I don't know. I think also having kids four years ago changed my DNA where I'm like, okay, enough of this. Be a little bit more serious. 
you know, work at it harder. Mm. You know, I think that changed me. And I think my work since then is for the most part slowly evolving. And the things that I'm interested in and writing right now are back to your question, much more emotional and painful than ever. And what I'm interested in now in my career is sort of shining a spotlight on people who are undervalued, underappreciated, not seen, Mm. um, which is another theme of my work, which I think is always how I've kind of felt, Mm. you know, I felt that I'm an outsider who somehow managed to figure out how to work within a system Mm -hmm. that usually doesn't care about outsiders. That's the kind of stuff I'm drawn to. Mm -hmm. When you uh, first sort of broke into the entertainment industry, um, do you remember what that, like what, what did it and how did that happen for you? Interestingly enough, you know, I was living and dating at the time uh, with Bill Condon, the director who wrote Gods and Monsters, and he was sort of struggling and we were both struggling. He was struggling in the film business and I was struggling in the journalism business. And I sort of saw him having all this fun writing all these scripts. I'm like, I want to try that. <laughs> so I would do my job and then stay up till three in the morning. And then I just kept at it. You know, I just knew that as soon as I started, I'm like, oh, I really love this. It's creative. It's freedom. It's it's um, interesting to me. And, you know, I had Bill as some to look at who I really admired and Mm -hmm. and he knew a lot about pop culture and a lot about the world and he's the person in the world who sort of introduced me to Joni Mitchell to Mm -hmm. the New York Times so I was young and there was a lot of things forming but um it just started from there and I wrote a script first I wrote a book a children's book which got me an agent Mm -hmm. um even though I don't know why I wrote a children's book but I, I did and then I wrote a script and the first script I ever finished Steven Spielberg bought like three weeks later. So I had this very bizarre entry into show business. Mm. And it was a script that had a really catchy title. It was a it was a romantic comedy called Why Can't I Be Audrey Hepburn? Mm. And Spielberg had had done the last movie with Audrey Hepburn before she died. Um, This movie with Richard Dreyfuss called Always. Mm I think it was called Always. Yeah, yeah. So he was like, oh, I want to meet you and I, I'm going to buy this script. And so I developed that script for every actress in the world and then they would leave the project and then become a really big star. Renee Zellweger, Jennifer Aniston, Taya Leone, on mm. and on and on. But that, but he was great. He was my entry into show business and because he sort of tapped me on the shoulder, I think um, other people were like, okay, well, let's take a meeting. And this was back in the day, you know, when there were romantic comedies and you could sell a pitch. And so I got, I was right in the middle of that Shane Black era of um, spec scripts right. and spec pitches, but it was all really exciting, and I, I, it's, I always loved it. And knew, you know, I've always loved show business. I've always loved that, and mm. so I had a lot of fun with it. Mm. What was, what was maybe an illusion you had about show business when you first broke in that you very quickly were like disabused of, or like very quickly learned wasn't true? I don't know. I, I never had any pretense, and I knew that it was going to be a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. And because the first thing I kind of ever really did sold, I guess that's what I learned is that. When I was starting out, and this was like 96, 97, I really wanted to be successful and I had sold some things, but it, it, but nothing happened. Mm. And I was very sort of dejected and, and what I have learned and what I tell other people and what I really even feel about my own work now is that if you have a failure, if you have something that's, you know, like a disappointment or a bomb, it stings and it's painful and it's, it's hard when you write something and people don't like it or it doesn't do well. But from that usually comes a great, in my less, a great lesson and every great success I've had has come from a failure or a stalled project. Mm. That's what I've learned. And I think that's what I didn't know when I was starting. Like I just, I am, I didn't realize that great success is sort of built on accumulation of risk and failure. Right. Right. So when you started out, you, you mentioned sort of 96, 97, that's a time when there's starting to be more gay and lesbian characters. They tend to fall into stereotypical roles, but you don't see bisexual characters. You don't see Mm-mm. trans characters. You don't see anything like that. And I know that when you were starting out, it was, it was important to you 
to have characters like that on screen. What, mm-hmm. what was the process like of, you know, getting those sorts of voices into television, in, into film? It was really painful and it was really difficult. And, it, and um, I don't really talk about it too much because it really is painful and a lot of these people still have jobs. Mm. But it was really rough because, you know, I was a gay kid and I was both popular and persecuted. So I always sort of understood both angles. But when I started writing, the first thing I sold was a TV show called Popular. Mm-hmm. And I had really cool executive producers, uh, a woman named Greer Shepard and a guy named Michael Robin, who were sort of my mentors. And they were like, you got to write what you know, write your voice. So I did. And I wrote, um, I didn't dare even start off writing gay characters, mm-hmm. but I had, you know, sort of outlandish characters in there. And I would get notes literally from executives saying, could this character dress less gay, even if it was like a straight woman? Or the language coming out of this character's mouth seems very flamboyant which we think is too gay and will offend some of our viewers. Can you take that out? And then two things happened. It just sort of made me mad. So I just sort of leaned into it. And, you know, I wrote a bisexual character. I started to write about lesbianism and um, I had a lesbian character, rather. I had gay characters. And I would have meeting after meeting and they'd ask me to take them out. And I would say, no. I won't do it. Why do you want it taken out? They were interested. This was at the WB. They were interested very much in gay people who were tragic. They were interested if you were gay and you would kill yourself or if you would try and commit suicide. They weren't interested in gay sensibility or the language of being gay, which is sometimes not just gay characters. So I fought and I had great executive producers that backed me and I kind of got those characters on, but the show was canceled after two years. But in that process I would have meetings with executives and I had one meeting with an executive about a script and I showed up at the meeting and he started imitating my voice Mm. and sort of making Mm. feminine hand gestures which I don't have and I never thought that my voice was gay until he repeated it back to me but I literally was stunned into silence and he was just being really really brutal to me and you know I came up in an era where you know J.J. Abrams was on that network and Greg Berlanti and other people but I was very um Paint by it. I never understood it. But right from the beginning of my career, interestingly enough, I did feel homophobia and I did feel no. And I and I remember one of my early agents was fired for being gay. Mm. This was in the you know mid-90s, if you can imagine. So then when that show was canceled, I kind of was like, fuck it. I just have to do what I'm going to do. And then I did a um, couple things that didn't go. And then I had Nip Tuck. And um, I really just sort of leaned into everything that people were telling me not to do. You know, sometimes in a great way, sometimes in a bad way, in a bratty way, but the show was a success and the show was winning awards. And I had really cool bosses then. I had Kevin Riley and Peter Liguori and then John Landgraf started. And John was one of the first people to really sort of say, okay, well, this is very um, in your face, but if that's what you feel as an artist you want to express, do it. Hmm. I don't think I would ever do that now. I think looking back in it, you know, in a career, it was like my teenage rebellion phase. But I think it only came about because I was made to feel so bad about my sensibility and writing gay characters you know at my WB experience which was painful and so now when I'm interviewing women for the Half Foundation and I talk to them and they tell me these stories about straight white men in power who make them feel bad and discriminate against them I'm like yeah I get it I've been there like I think I realized that I was traumatized but I didn't realize it until later in my life I just thought okay well this is going to be it Mm, mm, painful though mm. for me this is a thing you know I've been following entertainment journalism for 20 years now and 
back in the 90s, you know, we were talking about there needs to be more racial diversity. There needs to be more uh, gender diversity. There needs to be better gay, lesbian representation. And we're, you know, we know that's there. Like Hollywood knows that's there. You talk to executives or whatever, they, they know that that's the, the case. And yet the issue still persists. Do you, as someone who's taking a very public stand in, in favor of diversity, do you have a sense of why those two things can can coexist? The knowledge that we need to do better, which maybe they didn't have in the days of feud, but also, you know, just nobody's doing it in many cases. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. Do you do you think that do you do you think it's do you think it's better now than it was ten years ago, or just kind of a little bit better? I think it's I think it's better than it was 10 years ago, I definitely think we're more, much more aware of it now than we yeah. were 10 years ago. And I think it's start, like, especially in television, you're seeing shows like Atlanta and Secure. Right. You know, those, sort of those floodgates are opening, but it's still very like, it's often limited to the half hour dramedy. You know, you don't see a lot of it spreading over into scripted drama, things like that. You know, I think that television now, interestingly enough, follows the personality of the people controlling the network mm -hmm. in a way that maybe we've never seen before. Because I do think television now is a cult of personality. And I think it depends where you are. Like, I look at where I am now and, you know, who my bosses are from where I started. And, you know, the people that I'm the closest to here at Fox are Dana Walden and John Landgraf, both of whom are incredibly progressive. And... You know, I started off on FX, and when I first started off, it was like The Shield and Nip Tuck and, you know, the, the Dennis Leary show. And I did sort of feel like uh, I was in a frat that I didn't belong in. I will tell you, it was weird. But I remember having a very distinct conversation with John around three years ago, where we were talking about content and things. And, and he said, you know what I'm really sick of? I'm really sick of the white male anti-hero show. I think we've seen enough of that. And from that moment, on, I think if you look at what he's done, you know, he has really diversified that network and shown that all different types of shows can have an audience. And I think one of the reasons why he wanted to put on Feud, why he bought it 30 seconds into the pitch, because I thought it was going to be hard to sell, was if you give people a really good show about women, I think they'll turn up. Let's give them an opportunity. I think people in this business never know what's going to be a success. So I think part of it is the executives, but I think it's a business of fear. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at the network business now, you know, I don't understand why there's not more just big wild swings with new big wild voices because people don't want to see another you know something that could have been on in the 80s or the 90s right. but the other thing that I think is interesting is now you have people coming up who have proven that when they have a show like you know Atlanta mm -hmm. you know not only can it be artistically and commercially rewarded but it's makes money mm -hmm. and I think people are like oh let's try that but I I think it's about two things executives and showrunners mm -hmm. And are these people with new voices being allowed to sort of step up mm -hmm. and tell their story? Mm -hmm. I don't know. It does feel like it's slowly getting better, but it's not getting better quick enough. I mean, every month there's some great new statistic about how, not great actually, but how, how hard it is to be a woman in the business and be anything um, like a director or a showrunner. Mm -hmm. People of color don't have enough ambitions in this business. Um, I don't know why. I guess it's because the business is still sort of controlled by white straight men. Mm -hmm. But it's it's weird to me. Every time there is sort of a really great movie or TV show that stars women, it will be a success. And then people treat that like as an outlier anomaly. It's not. Right. There should be more of them. You know, we should be... I, I'm doing that within my own company. Like, I'm really interested in giving some sort of economic base for new writers, different voices, voices different than mine. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that changed 
when I had kids, I guess I'm sort of trying to maybe create a world that's different than when I was growing up or when I first started in the business. But I'm putting a lot of time and energy into that within my own company and giving fresh new people opportunities that they should be having but aren't. Mm -hmm. You uh, you mentioned uh, you went to Indiana University. Uh, you grew up in red state America. I did. There's sort of this debate. Where did you grow up? I grew up in South Dakota. So, I, I, so you know. Yeah, I know, I know. So there's sort of this debate right now within the Hollywood community of do we need to cater more? And I always feel like you look at a show like Glee. That's yeah. set in red state America. That's yeah. you know set in the middle of a small town. Certain seasons of American Horror Story are set in that world as well. What do you do? You think there's something Hollywood needs to do to reach out to that that world, or do you think we're already doing it in some ways? I don't know. I think what the election taught me was that we're not listening to each other. Hmm. That you know, there's a whole huge segment of people who feel underappreciated and unloved. Hmm. I don't know what the answer is to that. For me, no, I don't think the answer is to write, you know, rural Trumpian characters, you know. Mm -hmm. I think the entertainment business has always been cyclical. There was a period of time where that working class comedy like Roseanne and Home Improvement worked. Um, I'm sure the needle will swing back there. But for me, what I'm trying to do now in my work is to shine a spotlight on underdogs, people who don't have access to the world in which we want them to have. Right. I sort of am taking sort of a Reagan approach to my work now, which is, you know, if you look at the 80s, there were many, many, many movies and television shows that came up that were about people trying to find their way in the world when the world says you're wrong. That's right. what I'm interested in. I, I'm sure on some broadcast networks, there's going to be a mad rush about, let's do a show about farmers. Let's, you know what I mean? But that never works. The only time anything ever breaks through is if it has a a very strong creative voice. I think there could be a show that could be a hit about the world of the red states and a family that is struggling and feels underappreciated and voted against Hillary Clinton for economic reasons. If that show had an authentic showrunner behind it who had a very personal story to tell, I think that would work. I don't know that those people are in Hollywood. I don't think they are. Mm. So I think if you know you read now some network heads saying, we've neglected these people. We're going to write more shows to them. That never works. It's never worked before. It never will work. Mm. You can't um, try and manipulate an audience into coming to something. They'll smell it a million miles away. They won't watch it. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, you've had, I think, now three really like seasons of TV that just skyrocketed into like some I other have. level. Uh, Glee season one, People versus O.J. Simpson, and, and that first season of American Horror Story just really became huge sensations. Like they were on covers of magazines and, and all of that. Right. What did you learn from that you could apply from sort of that moving forward? What did you learn from suddenly being that much under the microscope? I learned a lot actually. You know, again, I'm somebody who like really learns from failure. Like when I look at, for example, Glee, which started off being a tremendously joyous experience and ended up being horrible you know we wrote that first season of that show in a bubble it was a show that everybody was like well, nobody's going to want to look at that nobody's going to want to watch that why are you doing that but dana peter Ligori, kevin were like that's weird and kind of good let's try it and we wrote them all and shot them all the first 13 before they went on the air so there were nobody saw them we were just writing what we knew it was very personal to me i came up in that world 
the mistake that I had from that show was I sort of lost myself in it. I feel like I, I was, I became more interested in, okay, well, let's do it bigger and bolder and better and let's get more guest stars. And, and that was wrong. That show was created from a place of pure, small, red state. I'm going to be somebody, you know, and, and then, but what happens when you have a cast of nobodies that suddenly in a week are on the cover of every main magazine in the world and getting involved in sex scandals and drug scandals? I mean, I think we all went off the rails with that show. That was a real wake up. But at the end of that show, I vowed that I would never do that again. And I, and I feel that way. Like, I don't think that that happened on American Horror Story. I didn't go out to dinner every night with my cast. I wasn't socializing with them a lot. And I think that's why I've enjoyed the anthological approach because every season you can start over and you're not attached to what something was or how do I top this or what happens if it fails. That has that was good for me. But what I learned along the way is if something works, it's because people have tapped into an emotional thing about it. And I ruined that. You know, that yeah. was on me. But I didn't know. I'd never been involved in something that was a cultural phenomenon. American Horror Story was different because I had Jessica Lang and Jessica had been through it a lot of times and was very good with me telling me about modulation and restraint and that was good. And OJ was from a complete place of passion. This, they were two scripts that I loved that weren't getting made and I moved heaven and earth to get them made and it was a great, wonderful experience. But, you know, the follow-ups are completely different but I'm not trying to top it. I'm just trying to be true, I guess, to the heart of what was the original idea that attracted me to it in the first place. That's what we're doing with Katrina. That's what we're doing with Versace. You know, that's what I did with Feud. I was just in love with the story. I was in love with these two women. I was in love with the pain and the emotion of them. Mm -hmm. So that's what makes a good American crime story for us. Right, interesting. Um, you mentioned that you really, after Glee, sort of gravitated toward the anthological. Mm -hmm. Each season is a different story model. And what is it about the anthology format? Tell me, tell me about developing that because you sort of you invented it with uh, American Horror Story, and you do it all the time now. And also, what is what is attractive about that to you? Do you still feel that tug toward ongoing stories, or is that kind of gone for you now? Well, it's interesting you say that because I don't want to say what it is, but the, the, my next show, the thing I'm working about, is um, a drama series that will be told over four years, where I will follow four characters, and mm -hmm. it is an ongoing thing. So I'm sort of I want to return to that world. Mm -hmm. The thing that I loved about the anthological series was. I loved those when I was a kid, you know, the Thornbirds, Roots, but they really went out of favor. You couldn't figure out a way to get them made anymore. And I honestly think that it happened because Brad and I created Horror Story two years after Glee, but even two years into Glee after 44 episodes, look, we were thankful for every episode. We were like, okay, well, this is burning so fast and we're moving through so much story. How do you keep it alive? It was not satisfying to me, you know, mm -hmm. but it economically was working. So we sort of felt a pressure to keep that up. So I just thought, well, what if we, um, at the end of the first season of American Horror Story, we're following this family in the murder house, burn down the house and they all die. Mm -hmm. And John was like, well, Landgraf said, well, what do you mean they all die? You have to keep going back to them. I'm like, why? Why can't we figure out a way to monetize it and keep the title so you can sell that, you know, and make money in the VOD sales and, and the cable network sales and all that stuff that you want to do, but like, you know, keep the same, some of the same cast members, but have them be interesting parts, different parts. He, to be blunt, I think was fascinated in it because it was 
risky and scary, which it was for me too, because who knew that it was going to work? Mm. And we never announced it. We knew that from the beginning, but I think if you remember, we never told people what we were doing yeah. till episode 12, and people kept writing like, "How the? why are they killing everybody? But it was great fun. I love it. I love, I love writing that, you know? I love, I have a great passion for it. I love working with somebody like Sarah Paulson, you know, and my conversations with her and like with Jessica Lange were, what do you want to do? What have you always wanted to play? What are you interested in playing next? So it works on a story level. It works for my fascination and love of actors, like writing them challenging things that they've always wanted to try. Mm. But I do have an itch to sort of go back and follow the same group of characters over a sort of four or five year period. I want to go back to that. Mm, excellent. You really have an eye for casting. Um, obviously, now you know you're going to get Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon. Like right. You're not going to turn that down. But even at the very start of your career, you assembled really interesting casts of people nobody had heard of. I'm wondering, what, what do you look for when you go into a casting session? What are you trying to key into on, on actors? I cast in a very specific way, which is I really target people I love. And sometimes I will write things specifically for them. Mm -hmm. And I won't, I guess, accept no for an answer. I don't know any other way than describing it. You know, with, with Feud, with Jessica and Susan, this was at one point, you know, it was, a, it was a, like I said, a blacklist script. And they were attached to the film. Mm -hmm. um, but when I decided to do it as an eight-part film or an eight-part show, you know, I had to talk to them and convince them. But they both, they liked making, there was more room to get rid of some of the camp and the, you know, what you would expect and really lay into these women, these real life women who were very sort of tragic and yet heroic in my opinion. And the rest of the show was like, I cast it all in my head and I went to all my choices and they all said, yes, it was mm. bizarre. So I went to, I just called Judy Davis mm. who I had loved since I was, you know, in college. And I was like, I miss you. Why aren't you working? Mm. She's like, well, nobody's writing anything for me. Mm. And I'm like, leave Australia. Come to me. I have a part for you. Mm. Um, I offered Jack Warner to Stanley Tucci just because I loved his work. I never spoke to Stanley. He just said yes mm. without reading a script. Mm. Alfred Molina, I'd worked with in The Normal Heart. I think that what I do with people is I just, Kathy Bates, I'd worked with before. Catherine Zeta-Jones came into my office to as a general meeting and then halfway through the meeting I was like oh she'd be a great Olivia de Havilland because she sort of has that grand dom air about her and I said I want to offer you this part and I'm not going to accept no and she was like what are you talking about <laughs> I don't want to start working in two months I just come from a real place of passion you know and the thing that I try and do with actors is say I want you to play this part because I want to see you do something that's both familiar and yet shockingly different than you've ever played before. Right. And I want to do something that scares you, you know. Jessica and Susan were both terrified about playing these two women. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified about directing it, so we all had that in common. I sort of lean into the joy and the fear of it. Hmm. And I am dogged about it. And half the time, I think people just say yes, so I'll leave them alone. Hmm. But I've never promised an actor something that didn't come true which knock wood has is you know still the, the, the happening i just love actors and i and i'm a big fan i'm a real geek about that and i just go after people that i admire mm, excellent um you've worked with sarah paulson jessica lang some of these people many many times what excites you about trying to find something that will push them in a new direction and like what what are those relationships like 
as you come back and say, Sarah, you're going to have two heads this season or something like that. They sort of love it. I mean, I sort of have a repertory of people that I've worked with a lot. And I just sometimes want to see them do the opposite thing than what they've just done, which is how I sort of do my career. If I'm doing something dark, I want to do something light. You know, Marsha happened with Sarah because she had been doing a series of very pushed neurotics <laughs> on my show, which she loves. You know, Sarah Paulson loves to chomp at the tooth and be insane. I was like, I want you to be a leading lady and sort of a heroine. I want you to sort of like, let's lean into that. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I've never really been the number one woman on a call sheet on a show. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. You know, Jessica, the same, like I, Jessica, like Sarah loves to do neurotic, pushed, tortured, fluttering creatures. And I was like, what would it be like if Jessica Lang had to reinvent Joan Crawford, which after mommy dearest and Faye Dunaway, how do you do that? What that that's a really hard challenge. Hmm. Taking a public person that's been so cemented in an image and sort of trying to circumvent it and reinvent it. So those are sort of the conversations I have. It's always like, well, let's either do the opposite of what you've done or let's do something that's really fucking hard. Hmm. And but I'll I'll be with you the whole way. I'll hold your hand. Let's try it. And all people really want to do, I think, if they're artists, is risk. Hmm. And from risk comes reward. Yeah. One thing about feud that you're tackling that isn't tackled a lot in, in television and film is ageism. Right. Um, you're talking about, I noticed also that in those first two episodes, you shoot some of the actresses so that, you know, we see their age on them in some ways. And I yeah. think that's a really bold and interesting choice. And I'm wondering, uh, when you were having conversations about this show, like how did you talk about ageism? How, how do you want to discuss that as a, as a force within Hollywood? Well, it was interesting to me because I approached it from a very personal point of view, which is that, you know, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, when they made Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, had had really long careers and had sort of fallen on hard times. And they were both in, I believe, 52, 53, Mm. and I'm 52. Mm. So I stepped back and I thought, well, I just sort of feel like I'm just getting started and I figured out a lot of stuff. I figured out a lot of personal crap. I figured out a lot of superficial stuff in my career I shouldn't be doing, jokes I shouldn't be telling. I sort of feel like I'm excited and I figured out. And how would I feel if suddenly the door clanged shut and some Somebody said, nope, your time's done. You're over. You're 52. Goodbye. I I wrote it from that point of view. Like, how must Joan Crawford and Betty Davis have felt? These two vital women who had so much left to give, but were being told, like, you're done. So that was my jumping off point. And then came conversations with a lot of women, specifically with Susan and Jessica. You know, and they both very were very transparent about their feelings that they were offered everything until they were 40 years old. And then with every passing year, the phone rang less and less and less and less. And it's hard for women to have roles. It's hard to have roles written for you. Mm-hmm. And they liked leaning into that idea and expressing that hardship. You know, Jessica and Susan are both very serious actors and mm-hmm. they're both very um, great collaborators. And, you know, sometimes when you're directing, you're like, even with men, you're like, well... I'm going to light you in this way or we're going to put on this prosthetic because I think it's the cold, ugly, unvarnished truth. And in both cases, those two actresses were always like, I want to look worse. I don't want to look good. Like this is, she was an alcoholic. She was a chain smoker. Let's lean into the harsh realities of ageism and how it was in 1962. Mm. So, but I think when something is good, it's usually personal. And it was a very personal story to me. And of course, then I spent hours with Betty Davis at the end when she had cancer and strokes and, you know, was sort of wrung out by life. And 
I was very moved by it and how she looked and how exhausted she was from the effort to stay in the game. Hmm. And that moved me a lot. And But honestly, the show really did spring from a personal place, which is like, I was, I'm the age those two women were when they made that movie and hmm. how would I feel? Yeah. You know, it was personal. I, I like to ask this question of people who've been in the business and had a creatively vital career for a while, which is, A, do you read your own press? Do you read your reviews? And, and B, if you do, what do you think is an like an unfair criticism of you and what have you over the years sort of, even if you don't agree with it, you think I can see why people think that. You know, I do read it all <laughs> and, but I've shifted in how I read it. When I first read it, you know, I would guess the first stuff that I started to read was Glee, you know, those first season reviews, which were real love letters. And then to go from people liking you, you know, and like you, for example, like I've read stuff that in the early on in my career where you liked and then the next time you didn't like it. And I remember thinking, well, wait a minute, why? I'm the same. Why have people, quote unquote, turned against me? And it, I really struggle with it. And I got upset from it. And I struggled with it. But what I learned to do is sort of realize, okay, well, if you're going to read it, then you have to learn from it. So I think a lot of things that you said about my work sometimes, which I perceived as negative, were true. Mm. And I tried to learn from it. You know, I was becoming somebody who was losing the plot, so to speak. I, I was relying too much on theatricality and outlandishness and tricks that I had sort of used to get me through some, you know, lean times. Um, and when I was winning, when people were liking me, I was much more simple and true. And what I learned is, okay, well, how do you get rid of your excess and get back to the truth of you, which people like it when you're real? Mm. That's what I got from it. I started maybe really learning that lesson when I did The Normal Heart, when I did OJ. I really tried on those two projects and stuff that I'm working on now and few to just sort of get on out of my own way you mm. know people would write oh he uses the camera too much are we showing off too much with the camera why do we need so many goddamn steady cams why is there so much verite and they're right mm. I realized that they were right and starting with OJ and now with feud you know I'm interested now in becoming a much more simpler truthful storyteller where if you have Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange in a scene, you don't need to move the camera. Mm -hmm. Be honest with the words. Be honest with the truth of the scene. Lay into that. Don't be so concerned with all the trappings that are around you. But I'm a slow, you know, a late bloomer. I've always been a late bloomer. I didn't really have any success in the entertainment industry until I was 34. Mm. So it took me a while to catch on. But I, I'm happy with the fact that I would read some bad reviews. And I had great satisfaction, to be blunt. You know, when I read, you know, your reviews or, or people who really loved OJ, who for a while had not been into what I was doing, mm. I was like, okay, well, I learned from that. I grew from that. I took that criticism and, and I didn't drown in it. I maybe became a better artist from it. It always bothers me when people say, oh, I don't read those reviews and I just do my own thing. I think that's stupid. Mm. I think you're here to learn. I think you can always be better. The other, there is one criticism about me that I think is interesting that I don't understand, which um, I think people always write about, oh, he does two great seasons and then it sort of falls off and it's not as good. That bugs me because I think that that's, I don't know, I think that most things, that's what happens to them. Um, but I do think that's true with Glee. Yeah. Um, that's my fault. I, I did that. But I think if you look at something like American Horror Story, I don't believe that's true. Like, I think season one was great. I think season two, Asylum, was even better. Mm. 
I think what we just did, Roanoke, was one of our best seasons, you know, right up there. So I don't understand what that label is. I'm interested in that. I mean, what's your opinion about that? People write about that with my work. I I think that's really true of television in general. Like, there's generally around season three, season four, people are like, this is kind of long. But really what's happened is we've gotten used to it. Like, we know the tricks. We know what's going to happen. And like... You have to go through that adjustment. And then you get to like season five and people are like, oh, I still like this show. You know, that that's happened throughout the history of television. And I'm yeah. fascinated by, uh, yeah, it does seem to circle back to you a lot, but I don't know that it's true just of you. Well, the only two shows I've ever seen in my entire life that I thought consecutively built from a storytelling point of view to excellence and never wavered were Breaking Bad and The Sopranos. I think mm-hmm. every other thing that I've loved, be it, Sex and the City or Six Feet Under and on and on and on. They all have sort of a dip or a lull or a recalibration and then become something else. And that that's just people being artistic and writing about their own experiences. You know what I mean? So yeah. I don't know, but, but that it doesn't bother me. I guess even hearing you say it gives me some comfort, but I do feel like that's leveled a lot against my work. Right. And maybe looking at it, if I really was looking at this as a therapy session, maybe that's why <laughs> I did do the anthological thing because I thought, well... Nobody could compare it to something else because it's so radically different in its conception. Mm. Maybe. Interesting. Um, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you talked about jokes you can't tell or jokes that aren't yours to tell. And you have, over the years, had a lot of characters who are tell, say, politically incorrect things, say things mm-hmm. that push sort of the envelope in that regard. How has your relationship to that shifted? Because it's certainly still a part of your work, but I think you've gotten better at having distance from those characters, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you do a television show, particularly when you do something that's 22 episodes a year, because, and particularly when you're somebody like me, who's working on a lot of things at once, Mm -hmm. like I really have learned and believe in delegating both in my private life and in my work life. So it's interesting. I take full blame and full credit for anything that works or doesn't work in my world because you're right I, I read them all I I edit them all but I I guess I've, I've learned to just ask the harder question and mm. what I'm interested in is you know a lot of times before in my work like on Glee or on Scream Queens you know you could make a joke or two and you could be like well we're just trying to be politically incorrect it's all in good fun mm. but what I've realized is yeah that's true but are you hurting somebody are you hurting somebody's feelings are you making somebody feel less than are you making somebody who already feels outside looking in even more distance from the world by your snarky politically incorrect joke Mm-hmm. And I'm much more ruthless about that now saying, no, we're not going to do that. Hmm. Um, and maybe it's because I have a child who started school and I get to see what it's like and how sensitive that child is when somebody says something that they take as disparaging, how hurtful that can be and how hard that is. So I think I just become more and more sensitive and I'm I'm harder on myself than I used to be. Before, Mm. I used to be like, we'll let it slip through and we'll shoot it and then we'll see how it comes out in editing. And then it's like, okay, well, it was funny. Somebody in the room laughed and then you're like, you let it through. I'm not, I don't let it go that far. I'm trying to be more adult and police my own work more. Mm -hmm. And I've realized the responsibility of images and words, particularly now in the world we live in. And I'm embarrassed about some of the things that I've done and said before in scripts and how I lost the ball and how I could have done better. I wish I had done better and I'm trying to do better. Just a couple more. Um, Feud, if it gets picked up for more seasons, do you see it as 
Hollywood specific, or do you think it could be about political feuds, you know, sports feuds, yeah. other famous feuds? Yeah, I, I don't ever want to go back to Hollywood with that show. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sort of interested, you know, the the Olivia de Havilland character, Catherine Zeta-Jones, says, you know, feud is not about anger or hatred, it's about pain. Like, mm-hmm. that to me is the thesis statement of the show. So I think moving forward, and we do have many different ideas... Um, we'll never do a Hollywood story again. I'm not interested in, in right away doing a female versus female story again. I think we'll look, I'm interested in doing a feud from like the 16th century. I'm interested, um, in a feud between two men, like in the sixties, I'm interested in some sports feuds. I don't think it's just enough to do, you know, the thing that attracted me to the Betty and Joan feud was that it was, you know a 40 year long feud Mm -hmm. and it really was about if these two women had just sat down and had a 10 minute conversation they would have been best friends it was a tragedy to me it was really about pain and so looking forward to seasons you know we're looking at all different types of feuds but they're really about two people that if they had just that's what the every thread will be about if they had just sat down and realized that their anger was about hurt, they could have made it work. It's a, it's, a, it's a tragedy show in some weird way. And I think that's why people will relate to it because I've certainly had many of those relationships where you're like, oh, why did, I, why did I not reach out to them? Why did I let this go so far? Why didn't I repair this anger? Because it's always about hurt. It's never about anger. Hmm. And finally, this most recent election, you mentioned the devastation after the morning after, but... The buildup to it and the aftermath, you know, there's this common refrain of, I can't wait to see the Ryan Murphy American <laughs> American crime story, Donald Trump season, something like that. Did you ever have that feeling while the election was going on? I was like, man, I'm going to be doing this in 15 years or something like that. I didn't. No, I did. I didn't. Ironically, right when the election was happening, you know, on American crime story, we were working on the Hillary, Monica Lewinsky Linda Tripp story. Mm-hmm. And that story really was about the birth of a certain movement, you know, the alt-right movement in some ways that um, was so riled up against the Clintons. So we were looking at starting the story in the 90s and sort of figuring out, okay, well, how did we get here? Where did we start from? That interests me. I would do that. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're making that series, mm-hmm. we're going to start shooting and I think later this year. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't think you could... I. I what can you, the same thing as on Katrina, you know, I will tell you that when we started writing Katrina, we were like, oh, this is great. What a buffoon Bush is. Mm-hmm. But actually now, what's interesting with the Trump stuff is to step back and say like, well, was he really a buffoon or was he really just surrounded with people that he believed in? And so we've taken a step back and, and tried, I think, even on that show to write a more balanced, true, fair look at that person, which I don't think we would have done had Hillary Clinton won? Because I'm interested in that idea, as we talked about at the beginning, like, why aren't we listening to each other? What happened? I don't think you're going to win if you just start attacking Trump and making fun of him, because I think it just makes people who do believe in him riled up and hate you even more, you know? I think now is the time to ask the hard questions about how did we get here, not make fun of what we're going through now. Mm. I'm interested in that. Great. Thank you so much. Thank Uh, you. Feud debuts March 5th on FX. Thank you again. Thank you very much. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vandewerf. And in case you hadn't guessed, that's me. I hope you like closing credits because I'm about to read some. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design was from Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. 
Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production is courtesy of P3 Post. And uh, this week's episode was recorded on the 20th Century Fox lot in Los Angeles. Our recording was assisted by Warren Burley and Richard Souza. Please come back next week when I interview somebody else from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody I think is interesting. And until then, don't forget to pick your kids up from soccer practice.